The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. What a what a morning already. It's it's humbling to come up after that worship and, and the, the prayer and uh, not to show my age too much, but you know when Jessica and I first started attending uh, Bear Creek Church, I think Anne was five or six years old. So to get to see her up here with, with her own baby was, was uh, quite a joy. Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody. I'd like you to open your Bibles to First Peter and chapter 2. It's First Peter and chapter 2. And as a reminder, I always think it's helpful if you can see God's Word in front of you. And so if you uh, don't have a Bible, please feel free to grab one off the back table. And, uh, you know, we'll just assume that you have so many Bibles at home that you couldn't pick which one to bring. So uh, don't worry about if, uh, you know, what people might say. Or if you need help, just feel free to, to even raise your hand and someone can bring a Bible to you. So our text this morning is First Peter chapter 2 and verses 1 through 3. And if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? First Peter 2, 1 through 3. God's word says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, would you please pray with me? Father God, we thank you for this time that we have to to gather together. Thank you for the time in worship. Thank you for the opportunity to greet and pray for the Morgan family. Thank you for this time to be in your word. We pray for the rest of our morning. We pray that you will humble our hearts and keep us teachable. We pray that you will increase our knowledge of you, increase our love of you, increase our awe of you. Help us to leave the distractions of life at the door, so to speak, that that our focus would not be on what we're doing later today, or what we're doing tonight, or what our upcoming week looks like. Help us to keep our focus on you during this time. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, when we read the Bible, we can have a tendency to see these chapter or verse distinctions, and especially with chapters, and we can think that, well, one thought is ending and then a new one is beginning. And sometimes that's the case. But here in chapter 2, we don't want to do that. This is a continuation of what Peter was already saying in our first clue to this is the word so at the beginning of chapter 2. So with with what I just said, so considering what we just talked about, so is another word like, like therefore. It connects what was already said with what is about to be said. So as a result of what I just said, Peter is saying, well, what did he just say? 
Let's have a a quick review. If we were to to boil chapter 1 down, it is saying, "By by his great mercy, God caused you to be born again, born to a living hope. So Peter says, now now live like it. Be holy. Be obedient. Love one another. You have been made new, so live the new life you have been given. If you are a Christian, you have been born again. God caused you to be born again. So we are called to holiness. We are called to obedience. We are called to love. That is to love one another. God caused us to be born again. It wasn't you. It wasn't you making the the best or the wisest decision known to man. It was all God. God gave you new life in this new birth. And this new birth has granted us a new status. We are obedient sons and daughters of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God caused us to be born again through his living and abiding word. And we have responded in obedience to that word. The fruit of the new birth is a new life. A life of hope. A life of holiness. A life of love. And all that sounds great. And yet, perhaps, perhaps it's somewhat foreign to our actual experience of the Christian life. The problem is that while we were made new, and we are new creatures, we seem to keep doing the same old things. Why is that? The Christian life often seems like a battle between living who we truly are as children of God and living how we used to as citizens of the world. How can we grow up into salvation, like it says in verse 2? The salvation that God has granted us so that we can await the revelation of Christ with confidence rather than fear. This is the concern Peter addresses in the first three verses of chapter 2. He encourages these first century Christians, as well as us today, towards holiness, by reminding them of and us that the very living word that saved them It's the same word that they need in order to keep growing into their promised salvation. Peter argues that if someone has indeed tasted that the Lord is good, they will crave for that word by which they will continue to grow until they obtain salvation when the Lord returns. So Peter's next command takes his demand for holiness and obedience a step further. Peter wastes no time in applying the logic of this thought. So he says all of that in chapter 1. Then he says to begin chapter 2, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. That by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So let's take a look at these verses together and look at them bit by bit, starting with verse 1. We already talked about the first word, the, the so. So because of this, so as a result of this, so with this in mind, he says, put away or take off. 
like taking off soiled garments. So put away, take off. Don't let these things describe you. Some translations say rid yourselves. So rid yourselves of these things that might otherwise describe you. Rid yourselves of these sins that you otherwise might be tempted to commit. He then gives a list of sins. Now there are other places in Scripture that we see a list of sins, but this one, this one's a little bit different. He is talking to and about believers. He is saying, because you've been saved, because you have been born again, you have been changed. There's nothing sentimental here. There's no sense that love is an entirely emotional thing. Our growing up to salvation demands a love that is known for putting away some things and longing for others. The things we are to put away have, have something in common. They, they all undo other people. They destroy relationships. In contrast, love builds others up. Love strengthens relationships. But these, these, these are things that destroy relationships. That destroys community. That can destroy the church. So we need to put these away. We need to rid ourselves of them for the good of the church. The sins that Peter names are not the gross vices of paganism, but community-destroying vices that can so often be tolerated. Again, he's talking to believers. He's addressing, in part, how we interact with each other in the church, how we look at and talk about each other. Yes, also this applies to the outside world, but if we just try to look good to the outside world, but then when with family, with, with our church family, we're horrible to each other, well, then what have we gained? So looking at verse 1 again, it says, So put away all malice. What is, what is malice? What does this mean? The Greek word for malice is used 11 times in the New Testament. It is to indicate that wickedness which comes from within a person. Malice is a general word for evil that carries with it hostility and possibly even an intention to cause harm. Malice signifies evil or wickedness in the broadest possible sense. Ill will to all. Or... It can signify that bad blood and nursing of grudges that seems to motivate some people. Our legal system describes a certain actions as being done with malice. Malice does not necessarily describe an action by which one person is injured by another. An injury might happen from a malicious action, but the term malicious indicates a desire to harm or injure. Malice has to do with a desire in the heart a purposeful desire to wound or hurt another person. Peter says that we have to put that aside, that we have to rid ourselves of it. The language he uses is that which describes a person undressing and putting his his garments to the side. From a spiritual standpoint, Peter says that we are to take the clothes of malice off, put them in the closet and leave them there. We need to have different desires. In the book of Ephesians, Paul says, 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So Paul's, Paul is saying that in essence the opposite or the, the antidote of doing what it says in verse 31 is be kind to one another, forgiving one another, not holding a grudge. Instead of malice, we are to be kind. That sounds straightforward, doesn't it? But if we're honest, it's, it's not always easy. One author described malice this way. Malice is this suppressed hatred that plots and takes pleasure in the downfall of another. When you envy another, malice dreams and envisions their ruin and then gives a satisfied chuckle if the ruin comes to pass. So malice can take many forms, but one of them is that malice could look like gossip. Gossip that is intended to to hurt or to make another person look bad or ruin something for them. Though this example really can intertwine between all of these. When we are voicing criticism or accusation of another person to a third party, we must take great care, first of all, that we have the other person's actual best interests in mind. If we really do suspect a sin issue... The responsible thing to do is to lovingly, gently confront the subject of the concern, not another person. Gossip is a sin no matter where you find it, whether it's in the aisles of church or the aisles of the grocery store. But it is especially appalling in a church setting where gossip works at undermining the unity of the Spirit in Christ's call to love one another as he has loved us. Gossip is anti-gospel, and therefore it should not be named among those in the church. And we can disguise gossip, can't we? We can present it as care, concern. But what's really in our heart? You'll notice that the sharing of actual sins, assumptive accusations, and -and out-and-out speculation has really nothing to do with edifying the person in question. This gossip is clearly malicious, but it's also something else. The world has convinced many of us that gossip can be served up as entertainment, yet it often just stirs up a critical spirit against the person in question. Some gossip, driven by malice, is aimed squarely at making oneself look better by comparison. This kind of gossip is usually prompted when we hear something good said about a person. If we dislike or distrust this person, we have a problem. When a friend tells you about the excellent work, a coworker with whom you think yourself in competition, you may reply, well, you know, maybe, but he always comes in late to work and he, you know, he got fired from his last job. That's the gossip of envy. All of these varieties of speech can catch fire in a church community and create the kind of quarreling, suspicion, and division that Satan loves. 
And as a, as a side note, I think we also need to be careful about asking questions of others that might put them in a position to be tempted to gossip themselves. If we care not just about the reputation and well-being of our neighbors, but also the reputation of Christ's body and the well-being of its members, we won't give this kind of speech an inch because it will always take a mile. We are called to love one another and build one another up, not talk them down behind their back. Now, I spent a lot of time on this first one, on malice, That's because I actually think that the others flow out of malice, like that example of gossip. Peter said that we are also to put away all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. I believe he gives us the whole followed by the parts. All that Peter lists here are examples of malice. Deceitfulness is born of malice. Deceit involves a definite attempt to distort hide or undermine the truth. It's done intentionally. We are also to lay aside all hypocrisy. Jesus often described the Pharisees in terms of hypocrisy, which in antiquity is a kind of play acting or pretense. A hypocrite tries to deceive other people about his spiritual state. He pretends to be more righteous than he actually is. So along with malice and deceitfulness, hypocrisy, it has to go. I'm not saying that we, that we celebrate our sins, but let's not overstate our heart for the Lord either. Acknowledge your struggles and then pray that the Lord change your desires. Let's just quickly define these other ones. Deceit, a desire to gain some advantage or preserve some position by his by deceiving others, by lying. Hypocrisy, a desire not to be known for who we really are. Hypocrisy can also be translated insincerity. It includes self-deception as well as the deception of others. Today, hypocrisy is regarded by society as one of the great sins. Saying one thing and doing another is so easy and regularly gives a bad name to Christians and to the church. Whether or not there is a deliberate attempt to pretend to be something we are not as Christians, we must strive to be who we are and not pretend to be something that we are not. Envy, a desire for some privilege or benefit that belongs to another with resentment that another has it and you don't. So again, Peter links malice with envy. Malice easily leads to envy, which is the gnawing sorrow we feel when someone else has something that we think we deserve. Maybe somebody is recognized for doing something, for helping somebody, and you think that you deserve to be recognized as well. Envy inevitably tears people apart. It is corrosive to genuine fellowship. It makes friendship and unity impossible. It undermines all of the glorious one-anothering that the gospel calls us to. To love one another, encourage one another, honor one another, serve one another, be kind to one another, bear with one another, and so on. Slander. The desire for revenge and self-enhancement. 
often driven by a deeper desire to deflect attention from our own failings. The worse light we can put another in by slander, the less our own depravity shows. Slander occurs whenever someone says something untrue about someone else that results intentionally or unintentionally in damaging that someone else's reputation. And when it occurs, it becomes a divisive, discouraging, and confusing weight that often affects numerous people, sometimes many, many people. Malice and envy readily lead to deceit and slander. The envious want to bring other people down. They will slander or malign others to do so. Deceit, like malice, is a wide-ranging vice. It includes all dishonesty, whether in words or deeds. Yet, deceit and slander are both primarily sins of the tongue. When we deceive, we shade the truth, ordinarily to someone's face. Slander is is opposition to the truth, ordinarily behind someone's back. The deceiver hides the truth. The slanderer boldly lies, pretending to deliver the truth. These sins always leave the same carnage in their wake. Mistrust, conflict, divisions, dissensions, and strife. So we must take this list of sins seriously. These destroy relationships and destroy community. We are not to take them lightly. We have to be diligent in fighting these because these sins can be sneaky. They work their way in sometimes before we realize it. So we guard against bitterness. We fight our own pride. We surround ourselves with other Christians who will point these out if they start to see them in us. The New Living Translation words verse 1 this way. So get rid of all behavior. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and unkind speech. Be done with it. Take that off and put it in the closet, not to be taken out again. Let's keep going in our passage and take a look at verse 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Christians are born again, so it's natural that Peter would think of newborn babies. Long for our spiritual milk. The ESV words this, long for the pure spiritual milk. Other translations say, long for or desire the pure milk of the word. We will get to that difference in just a few minutes. But first, in verses 2 and 3, Peter tells us to long for pure spiritual milk so that we may grow up into salvation. There is a connection to love and holiness. We can't be holy and love properly unless we know the things of God, and we do that by reading his word. At first glance, these verses may seem to contradict passages like Hebrews 5.12, which says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you Again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. In this verse, the author of Hebrews criticizes the audience for subsisting on a diet of milk and not solid food. 
implying that if mature, they would be on solid food and not still on milk. However, the context of this passage shows that there is no contradiction. While the author of Hebrews makes a distinction between the basic instructions that new converts need and teaching mature believers require, Peter does not use the term milk in the same way. Rather, he is speaking more generally of the purity of the word of God and its function as the essential diet for the believer. The milk includes all of God's special revelation, and it is to be consumed with an insatiable hunger. If we are to long for the pure spiritual milk that is necessary for growth into salvation, how should we take it in? Well, we begin by, by reading our Bibles. Sadly, we don't tend to read our Bibles like we do other books. I don't know about you, but I've never, I've never picked up a novel, read just a few sentences, closed it up, and felt accomplished. But that's exactly how many of us read our Bibles. Instead, we should read large enough chunks of Scripture that we get the we can, we can get the whole storyline out of it, as well as studying shorter sections in depth. In addition to reading Scripture, we should memorize it and study it, meditate on certain passages. The key to fruitful Bible reading is to have a strategy, a plan, a time, a place, and by faith, trust that God will be faithful to use his word to cause us to grow into salvation. I heard one person give the advice before of, before you go to bed, set your Bible out in the spot where you're going to sit in the morning to read. If there's laundry in the chair, go ahead and move it. Or fold it, I guess. But I mean, Who are we kidding? We're going to just move it. But we recognize that, that in the morning, if there's any distraction, any reason to not read, we're likely to take it. So eliminate those distractions the night before. I thought this was good advice. But we should also read and study the Bible with others. Parents with children, husbands with wives, and other Christians in pairs or small groups or home groups or men's groups or women's Bible studies with friends. In this way, we encourage and pray for one another and learn to apply God's word together so that we're helping one another grow into salvation. And let's not forget the importance of hearing God's word preached. This is just one more reason why our making a priority of gathering together on Sunday is important for our growth. I have been so blessed over the years by Pastor Dale and now Pastor Brian and their preaching. Now, for some who've been a Christian for a long time and have come to church for a long time, it's tempting to think, eh, you know, I've heard it all. Why do I need to sit through another sermon? I've heard this passage preached before. And if that's you, I would say, yes, that may be true that you've heard it before. But you're in a different place in your life now than you were before. You're experiencing different things. So something may stand out to you that didn't necessarily stand out before. So there's that, or it may just be that we, we need to have these reminders. 
Not that it's new, but just that we need to hear it again. We need to be reminded of God's goodness, of God's kindness. We need to hear the gospel. Not just when we are saved, but all the time. We need to be reminded of what Christ did on the cross. We need to be reminded of our own sinfulness. And that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of God's great mercy. Now looking back at our text, and at verse 2 again. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. That you may grow up into salvation. One pastor talked about the struggle that he called spiritual fatalism. He said, a great threat to salvation and to our growth towards salvation is what I would call spiritual fatalism. The belief or feeling that you are stuck with the way that you are. This is all I will ever experience of God. The level of spiritual intensity that I now have is all I can have. Others may have strong desires after God, may have deep experiences of personal pleasure in God, but I, I will never have those because, well, just because. I'm not like that. That's not me. Do these words sound familiar? Are these thoughts that you've had about yourself? This spiritual fatalism that he is talking about, it can be described this way. A feeling that genetic forces and family forces and the forces of my past experiences and present circumstances are just, they're just too strong to allow me to ever change and become more zealous for God or more fervent or more delighted in God or more hungry for fellowship with Christ, or more at home with spiritual things, more bold, more constant or joyful or hopeful. I like this term, spiritual fatalism. So I'm going I'm to borrow it for the next several minutes. I like this term, but I don't like the definition, or at least the reality of it in the minds of many. In fact, this idea is tragic in the church. It leaves people stuck. It takes away hopes and dreams of change and growth. It squashes the excitement of living, which is growth. It makes people feel defeated. And then we feel like hypocrites. So there are lots of people who live year after year without much passion for God or zeal for his name or joy in his presence or hope in his promises or faithfulness in his, in his fellowship and feel, well, that's just the way that I am. And they settle in. They just go through the motions but don't have a passion for God or for his people or for his word. But in our text... God commands us not to be this way. Peter says in verse 2, like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. 
The word for long here is simply the word desire. It's a command to desire. Remember in the beginning, we said that the malice has to do with a desire in the heart. So Peter is telling us to put away that desire and instead desire the pure spiritual milk, the pure milk of the word. So what this means is that if you feel stuck, because you don't have the kind of spiritual desire that you should, this text says you don't need to be stuck. It says get them, get the desires that you don't have. If you don't desire the milk of the word, start desiring it. In Philippians, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So we don't just say, well, I just don't have the desire. We are to work out our salvation. We are told to desire. We are told to long for pure spiritual milk. (laughs) Now, isn't that amazing? It's a command to desire. A command to feel longings that we don't already feel. A command to feel desires that we don't have. Is anything more contrary to this idea of spiritual fatalism than that? A fatalist says, I can't just create desires. If they're there... If they're not there, then they're just not there. If I don't feel things the way the the psalmist feels things when they say things like, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. A fatalist says, if I don't feel that way toward God, then that's that. I just don't. I'm not like the psalmist. That's what a person prone for this idea of spiritual fatalism would say. But God's word says in verse 2, long for or desire the pure spiritual milk or pure milk of the word. Now before you raise all kinds of, of objections, like well, how can you command me to have a desire? What can I do to obey a command like that? How do I just produce a desire? My whole problem is that I don't have the strength of desire that I want. And you just tell me to just desire it? But spiritually speaking, growth is not optional. We are to grow. This is made clear time and time again in Scripture. We are to grow. We are to mature in our faith. So again, growth is not optional. So instead of just being defeated and saying, I just don't have it. I'm just not wired that way. I don't have it in me. We see that it says you don't have the desires for the milk. Well, then have them. (laughs) What this says is that just as essential as having the desires for the word that we are supposed to have is having the trust in God that he gives what he commands. If God says to desire 
when we don't desire, then we trust him. That he must know something that we don't know. He must have some power that we don't have. There must be a way. You were once dead in your trespasses. But God, by his great mercy, caused you to be born again. And this same God can cause you to have the desire, the desire to long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Tasted that the Lord is good. Do you see the connection between the intense longing or craving for the spiritual milk in verse 2 and the tasting of the kindness of the Lord in verse 3? The tasting that the Lord is good. Put them together. Long for the spiritual milk since you've tasted that the Lord is good. You've tasted God's goodness, so long for or desire to be fed and grow. Now, it seems to me in looking at this passage that the milk is the milk of God's kindness. That's what we're commanded to long for. But that begs the question. So which is it? The milk of the word, like it says in some translations? Or the milk of God's kindness? But I'd argue that there doesn't have to be a contradiction. I think those are the same thing. Where did the readers taste the kindness of the Lord? The answer is in the gospel. The word of God. They were born again by, the kind, by that kindness through the word of God. Remember what 1 Peter 1.23 said. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So the spiritual milk is the kindness of the Lord experienced through the word of God. Or you could say the spiritual milk is the word of God revealing or transmitting the kindness of the Lord. You are born again by that word. Namely, by the powerful kindness or great mercy of God in that word. And now go on longing for that word and for the day-by-day experience tasting of the kindness of the Lord through his word. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, these we must put away. They must be destroyed. We must rid ourselves of these. If you want to experience desire for God's word, if you want your desires to grow, If you want to taste fully the kindness of the Lord, realize that as our satisfaction in God's kindness increases, the controlling desires of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander are destroyed. And the the reverse is true. As you resist them and lay them aside, desires for God grow stronger and more intense. But if we, if we continue to feed and protect and guard these sins that destroy fellowship, 
that destroy relationship, that destroy community, then we will struggle in our desire for God and his goodness and his kindness. If you're struggling to desire the things of God, examine your heart. Are these sins present? Verse 3 again says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, then we will long for our spiritual milk. To taste that the Lord is good is to experience his goodness. Peter takes this phrase from Psalm 34. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. In this psalm, David rejoices because he experienced the Lord's deliverance. In that psalm, David is praising God for his deliverance from potential suffering at the hands of Abimelech and looking forward to the Lord's ultimate deliverance from all of his enemies. In the midst of his trials, David experienced the goodness of the Lord. And so he invites everyone to taste and see that the Lord is good. In the midst of trials, God is still good. Likewise, the Christians Peter is addressing have already experienced the Lord's goodness as the Spirit has applied God's salvation to them and to us. They and we now have a living hope and an imperishable inheritance. So Peter urges, if if you have in fact experienced the goodness of the Lord, then crave the pure spiritual milk by which you will grow into that salvation you both experience now and look forward to at Christ's return. In closing, if we don't crave the pure spiritual milk, it may be that we're taking in so much of the world's milk that we're not hungry for the milk of God. In that case, we need to evaluate everything we are taking into our minds and hearts. Or, it could very well be that we have forgotten that the Lord is good. In which case, we need to turn to his pure spiritual milk. So we can discover his goodness to us all over again. So we open the pages of our Bible. And we read And we are nourished by his word. Peter's point is, don't think that they can flourish in the same heart. Desire to taste and enjoy God's kindness cannot flourish in the same heart with deceit and hypocrisy. So fight. Fight against complacency. Fight against hopelessness. Fight against spiritual fatalism. Fight to destroy the desires of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And fight to taste the kindness of the Lord and his word. As we recall God's goodness to us, we trust him for our present and future. As we experience God's goodness in the midst of suffering, we will grow in our trust of him. God has revealed himself 
and his saving plan through his son in his word. So we know God by his word. We know God by reading his word, by reading the Bible. Tasting the goodness of the Lord causes us to long for him more and more. And if we long for him more and more, we will long for his word more and more. We get to taste it. We are quenched by it, even as we crave it. If you're struggling to crave the pure spiritual milk, if you have forgotten just how good the Lord is, then take a taste and see. That is why God has given you to grow in faith and holiness. And that is all you need to grow. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we love you. We are so thankful for you. Oh, but we... We confess our pride to you, Father. We confess that we at times are more concerned with our reputation, with our desires, than we are with yours. We admit that at times, we don't even consider you when we act. Lord, thank you for passages like this that cause us to stop and consider the life we are living. We ask that in areas that need to change, that you would Bring those to our attention. That you would give us the desire and the strength to change. Father, you are good. We forget. We take for granted your goodness, your kindness, your mercy, your grace, your love. But as our passage says, many of us in this room can say that we have indeed tasted that you are good. We ask that you increase our desire for you. Increase our desire for your word and increase our love for your people. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.